All right. So this morning we are continuing the sermon series on a biblical theology of a place. There's a place for us. Uh, now, if you uh, missed, or by way of reminder, in the first two sermons in this spirit series, the first one, we considered particularly God's creation of a place for us. On the large scale, you can think of it as earth, and then you can narrow that down to land, and then you can narrow it down to Eden, in which God prepared this place and then placed us into that creation. In the second sermon, what we looked at was that as a result of sin, we were, in fact, sent out, driven out of that place that God had particularly, in the midst of all the other places, prepared for us, so that we, in fact, became a displaced people. And we can feel that displacement, that out-of-placeness in our lives, physically speaking, but we can feel it emotionally and in our souls as well as we often experience being, or feeling at least, out of place. The result of that is that within this world, we became what the scriptures call sojourners. We became exiles. We became pilgrims in this world. That was true of Israel, and perhaps it's easy for us to quickly think that, yes, that's true for Israel, but as we saw, the New Testament applies that to us as well. That status wasn't just a status for Israel when they happened to be in the wilderness. That becomes a status and a reality for all of the people of God, sojourners, exiles. And it creates this tension then. These two sermons, and I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, create a tension. The tension is that on the one hand, we are in the world. We're in the place that God has made. And, and the vestiges of the goodness are all around us. The evidence of the goodness is all around us. And if you reflected on the words to the opening uh, hymn, you saw, you thanked the Lord for those things. So the tension is we're in place, and yet we are out of place at exactly the same time. Now, as we move then on to today, the third in this series, we're taking the next developmental step in what we can call God's place plan. Okay, God's place plan as it is unfolded in Scripture, and the next developmental step that is taken in Scripture is a promised place. Okay, created in place and put in place, displaced, and now promised a place. So here, Hebrews 11, in light of that trajectory that we've been on in anticipation of what we're talking about today, a promised place. Beginning at verse 8, the Word of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Lord, we pray today that as, as we look through our eyes and the eyes of faith and the eyes of Scripture, that your Spirit would guide us well and faithfully to be able to understand these things that we are considering. Help us to understand, as your people, what it means to live with the promise of a place and how to do that well and how to cultivate that kind of a perspective in our lives. We pray that you would then instruct us from your word. We trust in you and we hope in Jesus' name. Amen. We're driven out. We're exiled from the garden. We're not home. We're not right now home. We are sojourners, exiles, strangers on earth. And all of that is true. But we are not, therefore, nomads. We are not wandering this earth aimlessly, directionlessly, drifting from here to there. We have been displaced, but we are not directionless. In A Christmas Carol, Marley. Jacob Marley, or at least the dreadful apparition that was Jacob Marley, who is, of course, if you can visualize it or remember the scene in your mind from the, the book, burdened with the chains that he has forged in life with the, the necessity of tying up his head so that his jaw doesn't drop down onto his chest. He's questioned by Scrooge when he appears to Scrooge, and Scrooge says to him, why? Why do spirits walk the earth? Why, why, is, why, why do you come to me in particular? Why do you walk the earth, but why do you come to me? And Marley's reply is that a selfish spirit like himself is doomed to wander through the world Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness, doomed 
to wander through the world. That is not the fate. That is not even the present fate of those who are in Christ Jesus. It is not us. We are not doomed to wander the world aimlessly. Why? Because grace is greater than all our sin. And it's greater even than the sin of Adam and Eve. And so, for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, instead of being burdened by the chains that we have forged in life, instead, we are laden with promises. Laden with promises, instead of being doomed to wander, we are promised a place pointed to an ancient path that leads to the place and instructed, walk that way. Walk that way, on that path, to that place. That's not directionless. We're displaced. But we are displaced with then a promise from God and with a mission from God. Displaced and graced. Think of it, first of all, on the level of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are two things. In the first place, they're driven out of the garden. It's a curse, right? To be driven out of the presence of God, out of the garden that God had created, is a curse. It's wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a punishment on sin and on iniquity. But they're also sent out. Two words. Driven out, sent out. And, and they're sent out not just naked, as, as if I pushed you out the door and sent you out there and just do whatever you want to do. They're sent out clothed. And effectively, what they are clothed with is a physical promise that has been verbally spoken to them. And, and the promise is, a seed is going to come forth from you. What has taken place here is awful in every respect, but a seed is going to come forth from you. And so they are sent out with a promise and with a mission. Now, it's summarized, that mission, in this phrase. The Lord God sent the man out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Now, you can look at that and go, wait, that, wasn't that what he was supposed to do in the garden? Yes. The, the mission is re-entrusted to him, even outside of the garden. It's a comprehensive thing, but it's used there representationally for the work that is given, the mission that is given to the man to cultivate the earth. That original commission, that original command is reiterated to Noah. In Noah, the story is the destruction of place. There comes a time in Noah when there's no more place on the earth. Why? Because place has been the locale for all of the iniquity of man. Place is gone, except for one ark, a place of grace that God is preserving. And then place reappears once again, and the commission is...
is laden with the promises of God. And we saw that in the Hebrews passage that I read for us, but also in the verses that are on the front of your bulletin this morning. Take a look at those verses this morning. Uh, the, the second one, the first is from Joshua, but the second one's from Romans chapter 4. Abraham is told to go from a place to a place. And when he's told to go to the place, he's not yet given the promise. It's when he gets in the place that God has told him to go that God gives him the promise. It says, I'm going to give this place to you and to your descendants after you. And the place was known to him as the land of Canaan. That's the place that he was going to be given. And it wasn't given to Abraham based on Abraham's obedience to the law of God, his ability to be a keeper of the law of God. Romans 4 is making exactly this point. No, no, no. The promise of a place was given to Abraham resting on grace apprehended by faith on the part of Abraham. Not because he kept the law, but because he was the man of faith who believed in the promises of God which rested upon the grace of God. That same promise of a place is then reiterated to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. We could find those in Genesis, but at the exact point that our writer makes in Hebrews when he says that uh, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. Well, the same promise is the promise of place. I'm going to give this place to you. It's a promise which is once again reiterated in Moses. We could find that in the book of Exodus and other parts of the Pentateuch. And then it's a promise that is once again reiterated to Joshua on the crest of, on the, the edge of entering into the promised land. That's on the front of your bulletin this morning where the Lord says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. He could have said, just as I promised Jacob, just as I promised Isaac, just as I promised Abraham as well. But every place where you step, that's the place that I am giving to you. We could go through other scriptures, but let's take 700 years further into the future of Israel and see that this exact same promise is the promise that is given to the exiles in Babylon. It's the promise of a place, that particular place. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a promised place. It makes sense to them, right? We know that promise. That promise is being reiterated, repeated for more than a thousand years now. That promise has been there. This promise of a place that you'll take us to or take us back to or allow us to dwell in. The old covenant people of God are a promise-laden people. And one of the emphases of that promise is this place that God is given to them. They could tell you where that place was. They could point to that place. They could step on that place. They could garden in that place. They could defend that place. They could put a wall around that place. They could set up guards around that place. They knew the place. 
They could be in the place or they could be out of the place. But they knew the place that God had promised to them. They walked that particular place. They were place promise-laden people. Now here's a question for us. What, what about us? What about the new covenant people of God? That's a really prominent theme that exists in the old covenant. Well, when you come to the new covenant people of God, what happens to it? Where's our promised place? Well, let's think about it in the first place and appreciate John 14, which is where we were a, a, a couple of months ago as a church, uh, looking at John 14. But it's one of the verses that I pointed to us at the very beginning of this that is, that is one of the marks on the map of, of how we need to understand this. Jesus says to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. I said, Jesus says that. That's a promise, obviously. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's a promise that has come from the mouth of the Lord. And so these disciples, understandably, when they hear that, they are fully in tune with that promise. He's speaking their language. They get it. They know what promise of a place means because you talk about the promised land, you talk about the promised place. We've been talking about that for 2,000 years now, the disciples. So they get it. They, they hear that. And, and yet there's something strange in the way he says it. What's strange, not only in the way he says it, but in the, the place from which he says it. Jesus says that to them in Jerusalem. In other words, they're in place. They're in the place, but the, but the way he says it is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if you can recall it, you can look at it later if you'd like to, but if you can recall it in John chapter 13 and even prior to that, and then as John chapter 14 continues, it, it begs a question from the disciples. And, and it's a very natural question. The question is, what are you talking about? Where, where's the place that you're talking about? Let's just think about it on, on an interpersonal level here as if we were uh, talking about it. Let's say you said to me, I'll meet you in the place. I'm going to go there. I'll go there before you. You meet me there at the place. I'll tell you what, I'll come back and take you to the place. I'll get the place ready for you. Where's the question that I have? What are you talking about? What place are you talking about? I get the promise. Jesus has given to them the promise, but where's the place? That's the question. That's the question that belongs to the people of the new covenant. That is to us. I'm going to give you three answers to it. Three answers to the question, where's the place for us? Answer number one. Answer number one begins with Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And, if you recall it, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Those who worship the Father, the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking are those who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is about to pour out the Spirit in a broader way than has ever been conceived of before, or at least it was prophetically expected, never really fully grasped by the people of God. Say, 
the idea of where you can worship is going to get a whole lot bigger than a mountain in Jerusalem. And by the time we come to the Great Commission, and Jesus says, go and make disciples of all of the nations, and lo, I am with you always, to the end of the age, where you bring in Acts 1.8, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the way the promise goes. Now, look again with me at the front of your bulletin for just a moment. Because we need to see how this develops. Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the land of Canaan, heir of Palestine, heir of Israel, heir of the world. Now, you'd be hard-pressed if I told you in your Bible right now, find me the promise that is made to Abraham that he'll be the heir of the world. You wouldn't be able to find it. You would be able to find promises that say all of the earth will be blessed through him. All of the families of the earth will be blessed through him. Kings will come forth from him. You can find those. But to be an heir of the world, Paul sees something different here. Paul sees the idea that the fulfillment of the promises that have been made to Abraham are no less than all of the earth, all of the world that God has created. Abraham is an heir of the world, not just of a little piece of it. Paul understands this is the time of super fulfillment. Now let's imagine something. Let's imagine just a this is a little bit crass, and it's a little bit plain, and it's a little bit reductionistic, but nevertheless, let's imagine it. Let's imagine that I'm someone who is very, very wealthy. And in my wealth, I'm going to do a couple of things. One, I'm going to give to you a gift right now. I'm going to give to you a gift of a million dollars. And I'm, I'm going to say, you know what, at my death, I'm going to give you $10 million. You'll receive a check for $10 million at my death. And my death rolls around, and you get a check in the mail, and you open up the check, and the check says $100 million. Will you feel gypped? Will you feel cheated? Will you feel like, wait a minute, where's my $10 million? That's the idea that Paul's looking at here. Indeed, the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of the others that we have mentioned, was a particular strip of land. But what he sees the reality of is that God's concern and God's promises have always been global. Always. They were focused for a time, but they have always been global. So that place that was promised on the eastern side of the Mediterranean is now super abundantly all over the earth. So that Paul can write to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, to the saints who are in Corinth, and all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something has happened. When you ask the question, Where's the place? The answer is 
every place. Every place. That's where our place is as the new covenant people of God. That's not a jit. That's not like, oh, rats. I thought it was going to be in Israel. That's like, holy smokes, the whole earth is ours. We're heirs of all of it. The second answer. That's answer one. The second answer as to where is our place. Hebrews instructs us plainly that the geographically specific land that God had promised to the old covenant saints was never, ever, ever to be understood as final and ultimate. It was always representative. And they knew it. At least at their best, they knew it. And they understood it. And that's why even when they are in the land, they characterize themselves as strangers and exiles. They knew that wasn't the final or the ultimate place that God had promised to them. As specific as it was, as geographically defined as it was, as solid as it was, there was another place. There was someplace else that they were looking for. A better place. A heavenly place. A heavenly country. Canaan, Palestine, Israel, however you want to define it or, or name it, was the down payment. Or, or maybe, maybe it's better to say it this way. Canaan was the advance on the inheritance. It was the way to say, listen, this is going to be yours. In the meantime, this is yours. Use this well. All of this is coming to you. It's the advance on a glorious inheritance. All the earth is not enough place. All of the earth, all of the physical stuff is not enough place. But earth, earth refined, earth reconfigured, earth recreated, earth renewed, earth reunited with heaven, earth freed from the bondage of corruption to which it has been subjected, Romans chapter 8. That's a place to be. That's the place where we want to be. Okay, that's answer number two. We're answering two, the question, where's the promised place for us? Answer number one is every place is the promised place for us. Answer number two is the new heavens and the new earth are the place, the promised place for us. But there's a third answer, and this one's going to bend our minds a little bit and bend our souls a little bit. What makes place more than space? What makes a place more than just a space? Where is there a place firmer than terra firma? A place is more than a place, and a foundation is more secure than bedrock when the place is a person. And the person is the creator of place. 
we think of earth as bedrock. Jesus is bedrock. Jesus, the one who speaks place into existence. Jesus is place. Canaan doesn't only represent for us the new heavens and the new earth in a physical place kind of way, but it represents for us being in Jesus. The disciples on a stormy, churning sea of Galilee are more secure than than if they were standing on the terra firma of the shore of the Sea of Galilee on a pleasant afternoon because they are with Jesus, the place creator, the place ruler, the one who tells the seas, you stay in place over there, and they stay, which helps us to then understand a little bit more of the question. The, the, the ultimate answer, if you, if you want to pin Jesus down, Jesus, where is the place? Where are you going? We don't know where you're going. How can we follow you if we don't know where you are going? The ultimate answer that Jesus gives to the question is, John 15, abide in me. You want to know where to live? You want to know where you're going? You want to know where the place is that I've prepared for you? Abide. Live in me. Make your dwelling place in me. Encamp in me. You are my high tower. You are my fortress. You are my rock. You are the cleft in which I can hide myself in the day of trouble. Abide in him. And if it seems strange to us that a person can be a dwelling place, a mother with a child probably understands. Probably understands how a person can be a dwelling place. And if you can bring the metaphor to Jesus, he's our hiding place. What would a promised place be without Jesus, if he wasn't there. The Old Testament saints got it, right? Some of you know where this is going to go. Moses. Moses, when the Lord says, you know what? Go up to the land. I'm not going with you. I can't put up with you. I can't abide with you. And Moses says, listen, if you don't go up, don't even take us up there. Because what's the difference between that place and this place? If you're not there, this uh, past week, there was a bumblebee in our garden flying along. I'll say flying very slowly along, and I had to laugh when I saw this bumblebee. I laughed with delight because you could barely tell that it was a bumblebee. It looked more like a moth as it went from flower to flower because it was so completely covered with pollen. 
you could barely see the blackness or the yellowness of the bee because he was just covered in white pollen as he kind of thought, eh, maybe one more flower. Maybe one more flower before I go back and unload this and come back and get another load. And I, 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 I don't, I'm not Dr. Doolittle, I can't speak to bees, but if you ask me, that was a happy bee. He was a happy bee, he was a worker bee, he was a blessed bee, he wasn't burdened by his pollen, but he had pollen all over him. He was a pollen-laden bee. And in Christ, you are a promise-laden person. You can't see promises, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You can't see promises. But if we could see them, if we could put them on sticky notes and stick them all over you, it would be hard to see you for the promises with which you are laden. If we took the promises, you know, some people, I don't know if people still do this or not, but in other days, people used to take a sticky note, put it on the bathroom mirror of a verse or a promise that is from God, so it reminded them of exactly that when they woke up or when they looked in the mirror. If we stuck all of the promises of God on sticky notes and put them on the mirror in your bathroom, you would never see yourself. So covered would it be with the promises of God. So laden are you with the promises of God whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether Old Covenant or New Covenant, the down payment has been given, and there's an inheritance to come of a place that is beyond imagining a goodly land I see with peace and plenty blessed, a land of sacred liberty and endless rest. The question becomes, with the saints of old, can I exercise faith so that through the eyes of faith I am able to see the land that God has promised? It could greet it from afar. Greet it from afar. For us, for us, the view is now much less obstructed than it was. The Spirit's been poured out. The Lord has accomplished His work and has called, abide in me. How's your vision? How's your vision in this world? It seems to me that having my pockets or my backpack or the promises of God all over me in sticky notes should make a difference in my life as a sojourner, as an exile. I think, I'm pretty sure, it should fill me with hope. When the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope, it seems to me that the promise of a place defined as we've seen scripture define it should fill me with hope. I think it should give me some perspective on this world. I think it should give me some balance with respect to this world. 
and help me to know what I can and cannot expect out of this world. I think it should set me free from worry, from anxiety, and fill me with joy. I think that knowledge of this promised place should make me a generous person. A person who is willing to give, a person who is excited to share. Abraham has the promised land. He comes back from Egypt. He's got livestock, silver, and gold. And he says to Lot, where, where, do you, where do you want to be? You take the right, I'll take the left. You take the left, I'll take the right. He can be generous because he knows the promises of God. And after he goes out and he defeats the kings and he comes back and he's got the spoils of war all around him, he's the kind of person who can tithe to Melchizedek and say, back to you. You take this. I hope it makes me generous. I don't need to hoard in this world because by faith, resting on grace with my father Abraham and Jesus, I think I'm an heir of the world. I think it should drive me to be a faithful steward in this world now. Not later, right now, in this world, in the place that God has put us in. The message that Jeremiah, the Lord, through Jeremiah, gave to the exiles was that it was going to be 70 years. And he didn't say to them, listen, 70 years, it'll be a long time, grin and bear it. What he said to them was eminently practical. Build houses, plant gardens, have kids, give the kids in marriage. Do good in this place where I put you, pray for this place where I put you, because in its welfare is your welfare. It's profoundly this worldly. So Abraham is the man who has his eyes, according to scripture, right, on a heavenly country, a better place, a better country. But when earthly raiders come in and the earthly raiders take various kings and possessions and people, including Lot, they take them all away, who do you go to get? Boy, that pie-in-the-sky dreamer, the guy who's always thinking about a better country, yeah, get that guy. Because he happens to have a bunch of trained soldiers, trained fighting men. And he's a man who takes care of things on earth as well. And so that guy, the guy with this view towards a heavenly country, is not opposed to going out in this country and fighting the battles of this world right now. I think it should make me a better steward. Planting preserving, beautifying, cultivating, working, guarding, developing, eating, loving, enjoying, praising, worshiping, witnessing, doing good, learning now. Because our Father made the world, our brother redeemed us, and will set this creation free from its corruption as well, and the Spirit has quickened us to the mission 
I think the promise of a place should give me faith flex so that whether I find myself in life's pits or on its mountaintops, whether I find myself on the hospital bed or the marriage bed, whether I find myself in a dirty old Soviet apartment in the seventh floor of an ugly building in Ukraine for 12 years, or on some kind of grand estate, I think the promise of a place ought to give me the faith flex in either and all of those circumstances to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be his name in any of these situations in which I find myself now, they're not home. Not yet. They're and in along the way, but they're not home yet. I think that the promise of a place should give me endurance and perseverance, especially when I'm sick of the world. Especially when I'm tired of the injustice and of the confusion and of the sickness and of the loss and of the death. When I'm feeling with the ecclesiast, with the preacher. Ah, what a world. Get me out of it. I think the promise of a place should say, okay, persevere. Stand. Stand firm on the promises of God. I have been promised a place. You have been promised a place. We have been promised a place. There's a place for us where the Lord Most High has his abode. promises of the word of God with respect to this are clear, they are grand, they are glorious, they are sealed, the inheritance is secure, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. Why? Because it's been sealed, that promise, with the blood of Jesus Christ, in whom all of the promises of God find their yes. Is the promise yours? Yes. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, can you hold the promise and understand that because of his blood, the answer to the promise is yes. They're yours. The promises by grace through faith. You are promise laden. You are not aimlessly wandering. You are not cast adrift. May those kind of promises lighten the load, strengthen the faith as we sojourn together on an ancient path towards a promised place. Father, help us. The lights are bright on the sides of the path. We are easily 
seduced. Seduced by the allure of this world and by things which are foolish ways to spend our money, to spend our time, or our energies. Lord, grant that we might embrace by faith that which you have given to us now with thanksgiving and embrace with faith that which is promised to us and walk accordingly. Help us to walk as our fathers in the faith walk with their eyes on you and with their eyes upon the place in which you dwell. 